think we can get started. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies. Uh, and today we'll discuss whether Jefferson or Madison was right. Uh, Jefferson family famously wrote that the earth belongs to the living, and his letter to Madison is often quoted for the proposition that we shouldn't be bound to the dead hand of the past, which suggests that the Constitution should be interpreted as a living, breathing document. Uh, less known is Madison's response, in which he said the Constitution forms a debt against the living uh, who take the benefit from it. And that's where the title of this new book comes. This debt, Madison claimed, can only be, be discharged by a kind of originalism. Who's right? Here to discuss that and related issues uh, is the author of this book, Elon Warmon. Elon is an attorney here in Washington and a non-resident fellow at the Stanford Constitutional Law Center. He was formerly Deputy General Counsel on Senator Rand Paul's presidential campaign, uh, Associate Counsel on Senator Tom Cotton's campaign for Senate, and a law clerk to the Honorable Jerry Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. So Elon, Jefferson or Madison? Well, as I assume many of you can guess from my choice of title, I think that Madison is right. Um, and I guess to find out why, you'll just have to buy the book. Can we stop it? Good. You, you want more? Okay. I want more. So, Tell us about the book. So I, think, so I think Madison was right. So let's start with where this title comes from. Um, because I don't think many people have heard of this phrase, uh, a debt against the living. So Thomas Jefferson famously wrote to James Madison in 1789 that the earth belongs to the living. The earth belongs to the living and not to the dead. The dead have neither power nor rights over it. Now, Jefferson's letter has been often quoted for the proposition that we should not be bound by the dead hand of the past, by the dead hand of the Constitution, that the Constitution should instead be interpreted as a living, breathing document. But what's less known, as Ilya mentioned at the beginning, is Madison's reply, in which he said the following. If the earth be the gift of nature to the living, then their title can extend to the earth in its natural state only. The improvements made by the dead, Madison continued, form a debt against the living who take the benefit of them. This debt cannot be otherwise discharged than by a proportionate obedience to the will of the authors of the improvement. In other words, yeah, Jefferson, you're kind of right. The earth does belong to the living, but only in its natural condition. The Constitution is an improvement upon the natural state of the world of such significance, of such magnitude, that it can't but form a debt against future generations. And the only way to discharge that, that is through a kind of originalism. So what is originalism? Right? Originalism is the idea that we should interpret the words of the Constitution with their original public meaning, the way the words would have been understood by the framers who framed the Constitution and the public that ratified it. But I think originalism stands for much more than that. I think originalism, first and foremost, stands for the proposition that what the law is, is distinct from what the law ought to be. This, in fact, is how we assess the continuing validity of any law, whether it's the Alien Tort Statute of 1789, 
or the Defense of Marriage Act of 1996, we first ask, what does the Constitution actually say? What does it do? What does it accomplish in the world? Before, excuse me, any law, right? Before we ask, what should it be a law? Ought it to still be a law today? So originalism stands for the proposition that this framework for looking at all law also applies to the Constitution, which is also a law. That we first have to look at the text and ask, okay, what does the text mean? What legal effect does it have in the world? And only then do we ask whether the Constitution still ought to be the law. So how does the originalist tackle that first question? Right? How do we find out what the Constitution says, what it means, what legal effect it has in the world? Well, the originalist position is that we interpret the words of the Constitution and of any law the same way we interpret the words of any communication intended as a public instruction. So this could be a fried chicken recipe that you found in your attic. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. Well, it wasn't my idea, alas, but I do cite. So uh, Gary Lawson, in this very entertaining law review article, I can't remember when it was written, but uh, it's called On Reading Recipes and Constitutions. And he basically draws this extended allegory of, suppose you find a fried chicken recipe in your attic, and it's dated 1789, and it was written in Philadelphia. How would you interpret that fried chicken recipe, right? You would interpret, how, how do you figure out what culinary effect, so to speak, it has in the world? You look to the words as they were understood at the time. How would other chefs had prepared this recipe? Now, it could be that those chefs were wrong about things, right? It could be that they really just had a bad recipe for fried chicken, right? But if we changed the recipe and interpreted it differently by, say, replacing pepper, which is in the recipe, with rosemary, which we all prefer today, right? that would be amending the Constitution. Right? It wouldn't be interpreting it. You would interpret the words with the meaning they would have had to the people to which it was directed. And so originalism stands for the proposition that we read all laws the same way. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there won't be ambiguity or vagueness or indeterminacies. Of course there will be. But there really isn't a dispute in the method here. So then we get to the second question. Once we find out what the Constitution says, do we like what we see? Does the Constitution create a debt against future generations? Because it's a good Constitution. To make that claim, the originalists, I think, have to defend the founding. And they have to defend the founding principles. And so that's what I try to do in this book as well. You know. People often say that uh, originalism, well, that's just uh, dressed-up legalism for conservatism. So isn't, isn't objectivism just, just that kind of rationalization to get a conservative end? Originalism, not objectivism. Right? Did I say objectivism? It's OK. You're Cato. You could say either one. Uh, so it's often said that originalism is just a rationalization for conservatives. It always leads to conservative, conservative results. And originalists don't really know what to do with this claim. They kind of hem and haw and say, yeah, I guess it sometimes leads to conservative results, but not always. But, but it's just what the law is. That's what they'll say. It's just what the law is. I don't think that's quite right. I do think that there is a profoundly misunderstood connection between conservatism and originalism. And it's misunderstood not because originalism is misunderstood, but because conservatism is misunderstood. 
What does it mean to be a conservative? Right? Conservatism, outside of any context, is completely contentless. Conservatives seek to conserve something. Well, what is it that the American conservative seeks to conserve? I think properly understood, the American conservative seeks to conserve the classically liberal, the traditionally liberal principles of our founding. Self-government, ordered liberty, and equality under law. Now, modern-day conservatives might draw many different implications from this. And in that sense, originalism might lead sometimes to conservative political results and sometimes not. But the broader point is, if conservatives seek to conserve our founding principles in the American context, what does originalism do? Originalism seeks to preserve the original legal content of the Constitution that gave life to those principles. So I think there's actually an intimate connection between originalism and conservatism properly understood. And I think that connection is actually a point in favor of originalism. Well, it seems like you're going, you mentioned the, the term classical liberal and kind of, you know, a synonym for conservative. So, I mean, Randy Barnett on this, well, not on this stage, because we didn't have the stage yet, but when he was the Simon lecturer at our uh, Constitution Day uh, conference a number of years ago, he uh, talked about the Constitution being essentially a, a libertarian or better said classical liberal document. And so that's why at least a consequentialist libertarian, at least, would, would like originalism, because it gets him to where he wants to go. So sometimes originalism will get the classical liberal uh, where he wants to go. But for example, I don't think it would be unconstitutional for states to enact individual health care mandates, for example, putting aside what the federal government does. So is the Constitution a classically liberal document? Well, yes and no. It is in part. What makes our Constitution such a good Constitution, right, what makes it successful, is that it balances the competing ends of a free government. And so one of these ends is the creation of a regime of self-government, where we the people actually can rule ourselves through the exercise of democratic choice. On the other hand, a free government also has to ensure protection for liberty, for our natural rights. And the framers, I think, were so successful because they came up with ingenious mechanisms for balancing these two concepts, these two ends of free government that are in tension with each other. Right? It's often popular majorities that infringe on rights. So the founders, uh, their mechanisms for balancing these competing ends were uh, the separation of powers, checks and balances, uh, the representative mechanism itself, which was novel in a sense at the time, uh, the division of federal and state power, the enumeration of federal power, protection for contract and property rights, and the protections of the Bill of Rights, which protected, I think, and here I'll tie it back to the question, only the most essential rights necessary for the existence of a free society, right? Jury rights, rights to be secure in your home, rights to speak your mind freely. But it didn't, I don't think, guarantee every right that a libertarian uh, would want to see. For example, and we might get to this later, but I'm not convinced you know, that uh, uh, the abortion decisions or the gay marriage decisions, right, which a libertarian would like to see as a matter of policy, those outcomes, I'm not sure the Constitution is a classically liberal Constitution in the sense of requiring a libertarian outcome in those cases. Uh, and so I think the Constitution 
is a little bit of both. And, and that's why it's worked so successfully, because it balances these two competing ends of government. So well, on abortion, at least, I think uh, libertarians are all over the map, because it all uh, goes to a question that's not uh, one of political principles. You know, when, does, uh, when do rights attach to a living being? But anyway, sure. um, so it sounds like you don't have to be a libertarian, you don't have to be a conservative to, uh, to be an originalist. And indeed, figures as diverse as, I mentioned Randy Barnett uh, on the libertarian side, but you know, Ed Whalen on the conservative side, uh, uh, president of the Ethics Public Policy Center, a former Scalia clerk, uh, very, uh, very conservative and judicial restraint kind of uh, person, also calls himself an originalist. And Jack Balkin, a Yale law professor, progressive, uh, calls himself an originalist. There's kind of the, the new school of that. Our, 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 our best frenemies, as it were, uh, here at Cato, the Constitutional Accountability Center, call themselves progressive originalists. So uh, can you be uh, a good progressive and libertarian and conservative and st be, still be originalist? And if you can, then doesn't, isn't the term originalism meaningless? Yeah. So Jack Balkin calls himself a living originalist. So he worked quite a coup with his book, Living Originalism, kind of co-opting it for progressive ends. And there is something there, is something there right? Just in the way that um, the prior question implied that conservatives often use originalism to rationalize conservative results. Libertarians often use originalism to rationalize libertarian results. And progressives often, if they've accepted the mantle of originalism, can also... Um, rationalize uh, progressive results using, using originalism. But there is something to be said for, as Elena Kagan said, we're all originalists now, right? Elena Kagan is, is a, a President Obama appointee on the Supreme Court, and she said we're all originalists now. There is something to be said for having agreement on higher order methods, right? At least then you can have an honest debate, right? Public meaning, as I suggested earlier, won't always answer every question. So if you look at the statutory context, one of my favorite examples, there is a, a criminal prohibition on using a firearm during the commission of an offense. And there is a Supreme Court case uh, whose name escapes me. I think it's Smith, but I, don't quote me on that. That said, a defendant who traded in his gun for drugs violated the public meaning of the statute. He didn't brandish it. He didn't threaten anyone. He just traded it in, traded it in for drugs. Does that, does that violate the public meaning? Is that, is that supported by the public meaning? I don't know, but everyone in that opinion, on the left and the right, were talking about public meaning. And at least that way, we can have an honest debate. But I also think it's important in, in another respect. So long as we honestly say we're all originalists now, and we understand the connection between originalism and conservatism, Right? That, that conservatives seek to preserve the traditional principles of our founding, and originalism seeks to preserve the content of the Constitution that gave life to those principles, I think that proposition that we're all originalists now does a, a great service in that we're at least all talking about the founding. And I think it is important to, to come to agreement that there's a lot, or to realize rather, that there's a lot in the founding for progressives and liberals too. I mean, I don't, I don't think the Constitution as I've said before, constitutionalized a libertarian political theory, just like I don't think it constitutionalized a progressive uh, political theory. Uh, it allows us to sort of evolve and develop these... What about Herbert Spencer's social statics? Did it constitutionalize that? Uh, this is from a case called uh, Lochner. So 
So Lochner is a, is a, is a favorite of, of libertarians. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with the case, it, this is a much maligned case. Um, I can't think of an example uh, where progressives, it's almost for progressives maybe on the same um, scale as Dred Scott is for everybody, right? It's this case where uh, the state certainly of, is for Breyer yeah. and for David Strauss, my former professor yeah. at Chicago. So, so the the state of New York prohibited entering into contracts to work more than ten hours a day, or maybe it was fifty hours in a week. I can't remember the exact details, um, uh, and saying it was a public health hazard and or something like that. And the Supreme Court struck it down, struck down the law on the basis of freedom of contract. So there's a fine line here between a classical libertarian constitution, right, or, or the classical libertarian objectives of the constitution and the, the self-governing aspects, right? The, the states do have police power. People can get together in democratic assemblies and decide, you know, what are sort of uh, the limits of, of how we're going to function and operate as a society. So the question is, what was the constitutional line drawn between the exercise of proper police powers and infringing on rights that are protected in the Constitution, right? The freedom of contract, property rights, property rights to your labor, you know, these, these can blend together. And I think the answer is, and, you know, this is going to play well, I think, in a Cato crowd, right? I, I think the answer is government can restrict these contract rights and these property rights if it's genuinely a legislation in the public interest. It just turns out that most of these leg acts of legislation are not in the public interest. Including in the Lochner case where it was the uh, established uh, larger bakeries that didn't want competition from the upstart non-unionized immigrant bakeries, right? Exactly. And so uh, I think the, the place to look here uh, is the slaughterhouse dissents, uh, what originally would have been the privileges, the original understanding of the privileges or immunities clause, right? It says uh, the state sh states shall not abridge the, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, and I think that includes the right to pursue your own occupation and, and to contract to, to get more wages uh, for more labor. Um, that's not to say that there aren't legitimate boundaries that as a society we can come to agree upon, but they have to be genuinely for the health safety, welfare, and morals of the people, and not for purposes of rent-seeking. It just turns out that, more often than not, it is for purposes of, of rent-seeking. So is, the, is that kind of like uh, the judicial engagement that my new colleague Clark Neely uh, has written about and, and pushed through the uh, Institute for Justice? I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. So judicial engagement sort of pushes back on this conservative cry against con judicial activism, because the, the basic problem, I guess, for a conservative judge or someone who believes in judicial restraint is that the game is a one-way street. It's a one-way ratchet where non-originalist judges basically op are open about doing what they want to update the Constitution. And then the conservatives say, well, judicial restraint, respect precedent, you know. Um, and this has kind of led to a one-way ratchet where non-originalists, often politically liberal, often politically progressive, but not always, develop these court cases and precedents that then conservatives sort of are, uh, defer to, in a sense. Uh, and I think that's not quite right. I think the, the question is, what does the Constitution actually mean when we can determine that? Uh, and if that means that these uh, non-originalist precedents were wrong, we should overturn them. So, so judges shouldn't restrain themselves. 
right? They should engage, I guess would be Clark's term, engage with the text of the Constitution, figure out what it says, and that's the rule that governs in that case. Because in our society, the Constitution is, I hope, still the supreme law. Now, maybe it shouldn't be, and maybe we've replaced that Constitution with something else, with the non-originalist Constitution that sort of lets the text of the Constitution play a role whenever it's convenient. But, but don't kid ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves. If that's the Constitution we have, it's a different Constitution. If there's some other form of source of supreme law, whether it's contemporary social consensus or moral judgments as tapped by judges. You know, and, and maybe that's our supreme law today. Maybe it's better. I don't think it is. And you have to do, um, I mean, you mentioned the Privileges or Immunities Clause. That, of course, is part of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, not 1789. So you don't look at those terms necessarily, what the, the public meaning, uh, you know, always back to you know, Madison and Jefferson's time, right? It's, uh, you have to do uh, what uh, Josh Blackman and I have called originalism at the right time. Right, that's right. So, so go back to the fried chicken recipe, right? If the fried chicken recipe were, was, were written in 1868, and it had a different meaning to, to chefs and cooks and, and, and restaurant goers at the time, that matters, right? It matters when the Constitution was written because, again, any, any communication intended as a public instruction, whether it's a law, a Constitution, or a fried chicken recipe, right, is interpreted with the public meaning it had to the people to whom it was directed. Otherwise, what would be the point of the public instruction? Interpreting the 14th Amendment in light of understandings and linguistics at play in 1787 is as wrong as reading the constitutional provisions of 1787 as we would maybe see them linguistically today. And what about these vague or indeterminate provisions that, that you referenced earlier? Uh, Robert Bork famously at his uh, uh, ultimately unsuccessful confirmation hearings talked about the, the Ninth Amendment being an ink blot. That is, uh, it's not that... Uh, he doesn't like it, but he doesn't know what it means. It's as if there was you know, a text that said, uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights, inkblot. You have no idea what that means. So Scalia also said, uh, with respect to unenumerated rights, he, you know, yes, the Constitution protects them, but he doesn't know what they are, so he can't do it as a judge. Um, so, so how do we get at, is it, is it do we infuse this thing with natural rights or natural law or some other background philosophy? So this ties into what I think is often perceived as, as, as the difference between textualism and originalism. I think textualists who see a difference between the two will see ink blots everywhere, right? What does legislative power mean? I mean, if a Martian came today, read legislative power, picked up some dictionaries, I don't know that he'd be able to figure out how our government works or should work. So I think, I, I think properly understood Textualism and originalism are sort of the same thing, and it requires looking at more than just a dictionary. It really does require asking what were the framers' intent. Right? If the framers intended something other than what they wrote, we don't look to the framers' intent. It doesn't matter. There may have been a mistake or two in the Constitution. But more often than not, understanding why a certain provision was written helps us to understand what it means understanding the background principles against which, uh, the, the background purposes for which it was written helps us understand what it means. And understanding the background principles of law that were at play factors into what they thought they were doing when they wrote the text. 
So when an informed reader in 1789 saw all legislative power here and granted, he probably could have gone back to John Locke, who had an extended discussion on the legislative power. So I think there are far fewer inkblots. There are far fewer indeterminacies in the Constitution as originally understood than many claim. Now, that's not to say that there won't be questions that we can't answer. And what do we do then? What do we do then? Well, a Randy Barnett says, presumption of liberty. You may have heard this phrase. Well, we should presume that the act of Congress is unconstitutional, that people are free to do what we want. But many conservatives disagree. And they'll say, well, we should deploy a presumption of constitutionality. I think that would have been Bork's view with respect to the Ninth Amendment. Both of them, I should say, rely on the Ninth Amendment for this proposition. Now, there are some more nuanced views, right? One could be a presumption of constitutionality when it comes to state acts, because states had plenary police powers, right? And a presumption of liberty when it comes to federal acts, which actually makes, makes sense. And I think Gary Lawson also, who wrote that fried chicken recipe article, also wrote an article about this, about burden shifting. It's the federal government has an enumeration of powers. So shouldn't it, the burden be on the government asserting its enumeration of powers, that it in fact has this power. And, and so maybe the, the presumption works differently at the federal or state level. But the point is there are lots of tools that an originalist can use. And a textualist, again, I don't see a difference between the two. I seem to be a minority view on that. But I don't see a difference between the two. So there are lots of tools that can be deployed. Meaning that you think that originalism is textualism as applied to the Constitution. Correct. Uh, yeah, I no, haven't thought of it that way. But yes, that's exactly right. That, that textualism means figuring out what the words mean. And originalism is, is the way you do it. You, know, you, you look at dictionaries. You look at how reasonably informed readers. But you also look at intent, purposes, background principles of law, canons of interpretation. Intent. So, so um, you know, I personally am more comfortable with looking at the speeches of John Bingham and Jacob Howard to try to understand the 14th Amendment than I am in looking at committee reports to look into the meaning of the, the Clean Air Act or something like that. Is that a, a principal distinction, or yes. am I just choosing? Okay. I think it is. Uh, and I think the point here is that, so, so, so to back up, to give some background, conservatives like Justice Scalia often liked looking at legislative history when it came to the Constitution the legislative history of the framing, of the ratifying debates, but they don't like looking at legislative history uh, in a congressional report for, for a law um, recently enacted, say. And I think this is probably right most of the time in the way it plays out. But I don't think the principle is quite right. I think the principle is we look to all the evidence to try to discern the meaning of a law and what it was intended to achieve in the world. But we have to be very wary, just like we are wary of, of a, a, a Federalist um, writing how the Constitution won't actually uh, create more federal power because they had you know, some uh, motivation to assuage the anti-Federalists. Right? We look at motivation all the time. It just turns out that there's a lot more opportunity to distort the meaning or the intent in an act of Congress through the committee reports. Uh, and so it's much uh, less weighty, I think, the evidence. But it's not impossible, especially if you disassociate the, the exercise from particular lawmakers 
and look at the general consensus of the problem that the law was trying to confront. Right? Something like that can help. And maybe there's information in committee reports. But as a general rule, we should be very wary of looking at that kind of evidence. But it's, it's certainly not a hard and fast rule. Before we open it up to audience questions, I want to get to a couple of uh, cases, some hard cases for originalists. The first one you cover in, Fifth. in, in, yeah, you cover in depth uh, uh, in your book, um, or you spend a, a significant time on for, for a book so, so uh, pithy, and that's Brown versus Board of Education. And the, the, the critique comes that uh, originalists have a hard time justifying a court striking down the separate but equal rule, given, for example, that there was segregation of public schools uh, at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification. Uh, and if that's so, if, if an originalist interpretation suggests that Brown v. Board is incorrect, well, then that's not a very good methodology. So I'm going to seize on his pithy comment first. This book is, in fact, pithy. It's 135 pages. I swear to you, with effort, you could probably read it in one sitting, or you know, something up to three. So that really was, I'm answering the question, I wish I had been asked now. I hope that's OK. So I really think that this is, is intended to be, by the way, as an, an accessible, easy to read book. Um, and so it's not out it's not, just yet. It's not out, is it what, three weeks from now it's being published? Um, well, so Amazon said it's available for pre-order. Um, Amazon says August 31. I was told August 7, so I don't know. Um, and by the way, I should, this is as good a time as any, if you go to the Cambridge website, Cambridge University Press, cambridge.org, uh, you find this book. If you use the code WORMAN17, you will get a 20% discount. There might, might be even cheaper than that on Amazon. It just depends. There's an algorithm, but WORMAN17. So I figured this out. So it definitely helps for the hardback. So the hardback, because it's an academic press, they, it's, it's like $65. So with the 20% discount, you can get it for 50 or so, 52 or something. But the paperback is, is, is also simultaneously released. And it's like 20 bucks with an Amazon discount. So you can just well, that's not very, easily very get good it use on. of price discrimination to release both at the same time. I don't make the calls here, the yeah. shots here. I don't call the shots. Um, so I also so we did hand out those flyers, and if you happen to be an intern or a student who's going back to campus and you know and would be interested in a talk, my the email's there. But now I I promise I'll answer the question. Okay. okay. Brown v. Board of Education. This case is very important, not just in our in our civic history and our constitutional culture, but for originalism, because it's often said that originalism can't justify Brown v. Board of Education, and therefore you know that's a that's we shouldn't be originalist. Now, in a sense, this approaches the inquiry backward, right? We first should figure out what the Constitution actually says and requires, and then maybe open it to the question of whether we should amend or change the Constitution, right? But, but maybe Brown v. Board is so essential that we'd rather be governed by a non-originalist Constitution. So, so we have to answer this question. But suffice it to say, I actually think the answer is easy. Originalism can justify Brown v. Board, and I think it always could. Now, Ilya, I apologize. I didn't actually mention this in the book, but I'm going to invoke Charles Black, a legendary professor who wrote in 1960 that the justification for the desegregation decisions was awkwardly simple. Once it became known what the purpose of the segregation laws were, once it became known what everyone in the South who had pushed to enact these laws knew, that the segregation laws were intended to keep black Americans in a condition of disadvantage and subordination, 
It is clearly unconstitutional. It clearly violates the principles of the 14th Amendment, which says no state shall deprive a citizen of the United States of a privilege or of immunity on the basis of something like race, which says you cannot deny the equal, the states cannot deny the equal protection of the laws. Once it was known what the purpose of these segregation laws were, Charles Black was right. The justification was awkwardly simple. So to bring it to sort of a higher point about originalism, I think it matters more, this is important, it matters more what the founders, or the framers in this case of the 14th Amendment, it matters more what they wrote than how they thought what they wrote would play out in the, in the world in a particular application. For example, when the founders wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, they did not intend to exclude slaves. They did not intend to exclude black Americans. They knew that the principle that they were writing into our most foundational national document, they knew that that would not be effectuated for many decades to come. Merely because they thought it wouldn't in fact lead to the abolition of slavery, though I should say, because of that writing between 1776 in 1787, over half the states abolished slavery or put it on a timetable for abolition. They knew that things take time. And the same thing can be said of the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. So what matters more is what they wrote, right? The original public meaning, not the original expected application of the provision. This is often conflated. How they thought it would apply surely is good evidence or is some evidence of what it means. If they had good reasons for thinking how they did, that's even better evidence of what it in fact means. But what matters is what they wrote. And it turns out that many of the Republican framers of the 14th Amendment, when it actually came to interpreting the 14th Amendment for the first time in 1868, excuse me, in 1872 to 1875 in the Civil Rights Act, almost a two-thirds majority of both houses of the United States Congress believed that the 14th Amendment required the desegregation of DC schools. That's a good segue to my final question, my final controversial case, more recent uh, in this issue of original public meaning rather than expected application, and that's Obergefell, which struck down state marriage laws uh, that restricted marriage licenses to uh, only straight uh, couples. So uh, obviously no one in 1868 was thinking about gay marriage. Uh, when uh, Ted Olson was asked in, uh, in the Perry case, not Obergefell, but two years prior, the Prop 8 challenge, uh, well, you know, if, if, if uh, the 14th Amendment requires gay marriage, when did it uh, start requiring that? And he kind of pushed back on the question and dodged it, and, you know, I think it, the answer has to be 1868. They just didn't know it. Um, well, what do you think about that? How, how, how does that apply? You know, Cato filed a brief a very kind of straightforward equal protection brief, the exact same kind of brief that we would have filed in a, in a you know, business licensing, occupational licensing sort of case, uh, not going into the majesty or the meaning of marriage or you know, dignity or anything like this, but, uh, but, but talking about occupational licensing and equal protection therein. Do you, were we you know, too cute in calling ourselves originalists there? You could be wrong, but not cute, ah. right? Um, That's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. So, so there are so many things that, that often need to be said on, on this topic um, because it, it is so controversial right? and, and leads to, I think, 
I think, um, good-mannered and good-willed arguments on both sides. Um, so the first thing to say, I think, so I'm not staking out a position yet right, on Obergefell. But the first thing to say is to remember that just because the Constitution doesn't require something doesn't mean we can't accomplish it, in a sense, through, through the exercise of our greatest right of all, our right to self-government. And this is, in fact, what was happening in the states before Roe v. Wade was decided for the, abor the abortion case. And it's, it's what was happening in the states to some measure. Uh, remember, the, this, the phenomenon of, of gay rights and gay marriage is only five decades old, something like that, maybe a little longer. So relatively new. And it was on its way in the states you know, through democratic processes to sort of be um, enacted into law. And that, I think, is actually one of the great geniuses of our Constitution. Why it was so remarkably, remarkably successful? Precisely because the Constitution didn't actually require a whole lot. It didn't impose a particular worldview on the entire society because it knew, the founders knew, that we would evolve. And that's why the rights that they protected and guaranteed in the Bill of Rights and in other provisions of the Constitution were the rights most essential to the operation of a free society because they knew that society's views might change on things like abortion and gay marriage, they left those things to the democratic process. And I think that's one of the virtues. Okay, I've dodged so far. I do think it's, it's possible to make an originalist case uh, for Obergefell, uh, for same-sex marriage, uh, as a constitutional matter. But I, I do think it's, it's a lot harder than the Cato uh, brief you know, uh, well, suggested. Well, surely, surely you're not talking about Ilya Soman's sex discrimination argument then. Well, the best way, okay, the best way, I have high respect for you and for the other Ilya, but I do think um, it's a harder case to make. And, and what I'm going to say, you know, uh, might sound controversial, uh, but I think it helps to actually compare it to Loving v. Virginia, right, to the, to the, the case uh, prohibiting states from banning interracial marriages. And this is very much like what Charles Black said about Brown v. Board. Loving v. Virginia was a unanimous decision, 9-0. Why was it obviously right? Because, again, once everyone knew what the purpose of the anti-miscegenation laws were, once they knew what the purpose of prohibiting uh, uh, couples of, uh, of opposite races or different races from intermarrying, once it was understood that that purpose was precisely to keep the white race and the black race separate and to keep one in subordination and disadvantage to the other, that's obviously unconstitutional. And that has nothing to do with the institution of marriage, right? So it's possible to make an argument along those lines for gay, for gay marriage. It is harder, though, I think. And again, I'm not, I haven't actually personally committed to the Constitution. So it turns on whether five justices think that there's animus? I think it turns on, well, that's in fact what it did turn on. I think it turns on whether one could say that 3,000 years you know, of, of, of marriage laws were directed toward uh, animus. I mean, obviously, for the whole 3,000 years, they weren't, had, didn't have this in mind. You know, toward the disadvantage and subordination of gay Americans. And I think an argument could be made, uh, but I think people who believe that marriage is between a man and, uh, uh, should be between a man and a woman have much more respectful arguments than that. And they may be wrong, and I actually think they're wrong as a personal matter and as a matter of public policy. 
Uh, I don't think someone like me who, who wants to be able to get married someday ought to necessarily impose that view on 300 million Americans with different values. All right, on that note, we're, we'll open it up to questions. Now wait to be called on, wait for the microphone. Only we'll softballs permitted. Start down here. Um, and uh, actually ask a question, and, and please give your uh, affiliation, if any. Can we have them submitted in advance? And no. Like, no. I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, Elon, I've just finished the book before the event started. This is a fine book, excellent book. and I urge everyone here to order a copy. Um, one of the things you do is lay out the three points that make the Constitution worth uh, abiding by the uh, provision for a um, for protection of natural rights uh, and guarantee of a um, republican form of government, and finally the um, popular sovereignty. Now it's that second one, the popular, uh, uh, rather the um, uh, republican form, which entails democratic rights. And as you just said, our most important right, the right of self-government. Now, some of us would take exception for that. And we would do so with reference to the two themes that you work in several places in the book, namely the presumption of liberty and the presumption of, um, of uh, Constitution. constitutionality, which you said, citing Gary, uh, Gary Lawson, uh, should be with respect to the federal and state governments, respectively. Well, it's the state side that concerns people like those of us here at uh, Cato, because if you have a presumption of constitutionality, you're alluding, of course, to the police power. And you don't do a lot in the book about explication of the police power. Locke, of course, said it is the executive power which we yield up to government in when we leave the state of nature. Now, and if that's the case, then when you get over to the morals font of the police power, then you get the kind of self-government that has given us the statutes that were at issue in every case from Lochner to Griswold to Lawrence. And I'm wondering if, that, if what it is that you're saying is that those cases were rightly decided because of the presumption of constitutionality on the state side. So this is another uh, fine example of how uh, the Constitution doesn't always lead to one's preferred results, or originalism doesn't always lead to one's preferred results. Uh, because I do consider myself, for example, more classically liberal. You know, I'm somewhere on the conservative libertarian you know, scale personally. But I don't think- You're on the spectrum. I'm on the spectrum, that's right. I'm on many spectrums. And so I don't think that the Constitution constitutionalized sort of the, the libertarian view, and I do think the states were understood to have police powers. Having said that, right, that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow that, um, well, let's see. You listed Lochner, Griswold, and Lawrence. Lawrence. They were all wrongly decided if you're going to have a presumption of constitutionality. Right on the state side with respect to the morals of the police power. So I think at least one of those cases was rightly decided. So, Which? 
I think Lochner was probably rightly decided, also a controversial proposition, but not on the basis right, of any sort of presumption of liberty, presumption of constitutionality. Now, I admit in the book, I did hint at this case and that it might be an example. This is where your, your uh, question is coming from, of maybe an honest difference between the presumption of constitutionality and the presumption of liberty. Right? So the presumption of constitutionality uh, uh, view would say, you know, these police powers, the, these laws passed by states, we should presume that, that they're okay as a general matter. The burden should be on the bakers or their attorneys for arguing that they should have the freedom to contract more. And the presumption of liberty would go the other way. Right? It would say, no, we have this freedom to contract. It's really the government's burden. Right? So maybe that's a genuine difference. Right? But I actually, I actually don't know. And maybe I'll have to rewrite it in the second edition. I don't know that that's a perfect example of the presumption of liberty and the presumption of constitutionality. Because I think, properly deployed, these presumptions only apply right, when there's uncertainty or indeterminacy or ambiguity, where the original public meaning of the Constitution doesn't actually necessarily answer this question. It's not obvious whether the public meaning says strike down X or it's constitutional. You have to uphold it. It's only in those true cases of what we call equipoise, you know, I guess what we call, I guess everyone calls it equipoise. I don't, know, I don't think it's like lawyer speak or anything. But only in those cases should you really deploy one of these presumptions, right? It's like a closure rule where you don't know uh, which, which we have closure rules in, in all sorts of areas of law, in contract interpretation, for example. You just don't quite know what the result is, so there's just a rule, a default rule that you go to. But as I said earlier to, to Ilya's question, a proper understanding of the police power, and maybe I do have to go into this in the next version before this one's already out, is they have to truly be public interested, right? They have to truly be rooted in the health, safety, welfare, or morals of the people. And Lochner, like so most other survive, cases, it has to survive, it has to survive strict scrutiny otherwise, real scrutiny, and not have these multiple scrutiny land tiers. I think that's right. I'm not going to commit to that, but I think that's right. Uh, I should say uh, we'll go there Based and then I there. And if all of you watching at home in Twitter land, you, you can question. tweet at me to uh, hashtag Cato events. And I should say hello to my 18-month-old son, uh, Jacob, who's watching at home. We're truly teaching the youth here. What a here trooper. Yeah. Hi. You are I cool. have a, a sort of a two-part question that requires first an answer on what, what do you, you mean when you keep referring to privileges in the Constitution. How do you define that? Is there a, is there a debate about that? And th from that, I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, yes, there is a debate about that. So uh, the answer... Let's, let's, let's get your second part of the sure, question. Sure, I'll, I'll answer both. Going back and forth. All right. Well, my, my, second, my question is, if, it's, if you assume that privileges was supposed to be uh, an old reference to rights, which yes. I think some people have argued, right? Am I right about that? No, you're not going yeah, to say yeah. yes or no? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if, it, if it was meant to be rights, my question is, how, why would you interpret it that way? Because if you start with the, Const the Declaration of Independence, it, it talks about natural rights. Mm -hmm. And to me, natural rights are only positive rights. Therefore, when, when the provision uses the term privileges and immunities, they, the, the drafters knew what rights were, and they didn't use the word rights there. And I think that the word privileges should mean so. things that the government, like entitlements, things that the government does yeah. that, that aren't, aren't 
involved with rights. They don't affect our, our rights as negative mm -hmm. rights. So those are both very good questions, and I'm going to try to answer both, but there's a lot in the background there that I you know, might quibble with, so I'll try to answer a, a bit generally. But yes, there is a huge debate over what the original meaning of privileges or immunities means. Right? The 14th Amendment says, no state shall deny right, a citizen a privilege or immunity, or I should say, no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So the answer is today, this means nothing, utterly nothing. The Supreme Court wrote it out of the Constitution a long time ago in the slaughterhouse cases. Now the Supreme Court has, that was like in 1873, I, I can't remember exactly, but long time ago. Now the court has therefore done a lot of quite impressive mental gymnastics to squeeze a lot of these traditional privileges or immunities into the meaning of a due process of law. And that's a struggle because I think you know, due process of law arguably had its own meaning and now it's all completely obscured. But from an original public meaning perspective, there is a debate among conservatives too uh, over what privileges or immunities mean. So Phil Hamburger takes one view um, that, Right, so, so his view is, is basically that um, um, it was the same right uh, that there's a privileges and immunities clause in Article 4, right? And it basically was intended, again, to protect just the privileges or immunities of, of black citizens, right? The libertarian, right, give them the same privileges or immunities that existed with whites, whatever those privileges or immunities were. The, and, and I may not be doing justice to his article, so you should, you should read it uh, for yourselves. Uh, the more libertarian position, um, which I think is probably right, though I hesitate to say that because Philip Hamburger usually is right, so, but probably right, is that privileges or immunities meant a lot more than that, that there was this whole slew of rights, right, the right to contract, right, the freedom of contract, that were baked into this term, privileges or immunities, and that therefore the 14th Amendment now protects those rights against the states. Right? That's the difference. That's the work the 14th Amendment does. Before, the federal government couldn't do things like take property without compensation. It couldn't just compensation. It couldn't impair the obligation. I guess the states actually couldn't impair the obligations of contract. But now all of these sort of privileges or immunities apply to the states as well. They can't deprive them of this. And, okay. and, well, and, so, and so this is another example. And I'm sorry I'm going on too long on this. But how do we figure out what it means? It's just like the legislative power. If you just looked at a dictionary, you wouldn't necessarily know what it means. Well, it turns out that there are sources that the drafters relied upon. And for example, there's a famous case, uh, I believe by Justice Bushrod Washington, right? Corfield Corf, Corf, v. Coriol. Coriol, am I getting that backward? In the District of Pennsylvania when he was riding circuit. Where he defined this term in the 1830s. And there's good evidence that all of those privileges or immunities to which he referred is what the, the framers referred to. So I'm not an expert on the original meaning of the privileges or immunities clause. But long story short, there is a debate, but there are tools, right, in which an originalist, uh, someone who believes in original public meaning, there are tools that can be deployed. There are historical sources, right, that can be plumbed for an answer uh, to that question. Yeah, we had a hand up here. And perhaps it was not a good idea to call on Roger first because that set the tone for long questions and long answers. So please, people, shorter. Um, my name is Jackson Richmond, and I'm a recent graduate of George Washington University. Um, two questions. One is, do you think the 14th Amendment applies to the private sector, like a baker refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex couple? And second, um, there's the famous argument about the Second Amendment. Oh, at the time, the founders meant for 
to be um, protecting yourself against repressive government? How do you answer that? Can you repeat that second part? The, 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 the argument that the Second Amendment was meant to uh, allow people to protect themselves against oppressive government. The, yeah, the uh, anti-Second Amendment argument. Yeah. Um, so the first question is, is very current. It's very relevant. So this is the question of, uh, and for what it's worth, I don't think the 14th Amendment has anything to do with this particular issue, uh, but it's a very important constitutional issue, which is, can um, Well, uh, it's the, the First state, Amendment as incorporated by the 14th Amendment, right? Well, I think it's probably... Yeah, okay, maybe that's right. And I mean, yeah. I think incorporation is a constitutional malapropism for the reasons that you talked about with due yeah. process and whatever, but anyway. Maybe that's right, so I'll have to think about that more. But, so the question is, can a state force someone to provide a service? Uh, for example, bake a, a wedding cake or take photographs, right? Uh, um, uh, and I think um, the 14th Amendment, okay, so, so I haven't thought of it in these terms. I guess you're right. I think the 14th Amendment probably prohibits the state from forcing someone into that kind of service, right? What the 14th Amendment doesn't prohibit is the line drawn by the public accommodation laws akin to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says, right, you can't deny service to someone on the basis of race. Now, I didn't say this, but I think on the basis of your sexuality, it could apply to that too, right? If they come up and you, to your public accommodation, you know, you, ha you have a, a counter and you sell wedding cakes, pre-made wedding cakes, I think a state can say, just like the federal government says, you cannot discriminate. In, a, in, in the provision of a public accommodation. So these, these cases will boil down to what is the meaning of a public accommodation? And whether and, there's a difference between making a custom cake versus selling something off the shelf or whatnot. Correct. And so I think at the federal level, again, that's, uh, um, I guess the 14th Amendment would protect uh, probably the, the photographer and, and the wedding baker in, in that respect. But that doesn't mean the state is powerless. It can pass the kinds of public accommodation laws and they, should apply to sexuality as well. And real quick on the Second Amendment. Uh, I like the Second Amendment. No, talk about originalism oh. at the right time. That was, that was that cue, right? Because the Second Amendment as applied to the states is what it means in 1868, when it was much more about armed self-defense, yeah. right? Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't thought of this issue of how um, the Second Amendment is incorporated against the states, but it, as I guess you suggested, it is problematic, this whole doctrine of incorporating the Bill of Rights to the states because some of them are clearly directed at the federal government, right? Um, the, there shall be no establishment of religion, right? Congress shall pass no law. Um, oh gosh, I should really memorize this. But you can't establish a religion, right? But the states, respecting, respecting the establishment of religion. Thank you, Jeremy. So the, the, the states had established religions until 1833. So clearly that doesn't apply to the states as an original matter. So how can you, in fact, the entire First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law. How do you apply that to the states, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. The Supreme Court has said it does apply to the states, and that's the world we live in. But that's an interesting problem in incorporation. And the Second Amendment might be problematic in that respect too, but I have not thought very deeply about it. All right. Uh, we actually have a question from Twitter before we go back to the audience. Alexandra Perez, who is a student of public policy, uh, asks, how does Elon reconcile originalism and the delegation of power from Congress to bureaucratic agencies? 
Is the whole administrative state unlawful, like Philip Hamburger says in his book that's been cited repeatedly now by the court? So a lot of it is, yes. But I think we often misdiagnose the problem. Uh, so Philip Hamburger has, his whole problem is the delegation of power, right? Where, well, if we're going to be doing this, Congress should be doing this. That the administrative state routinely makes law today. We don't call it that. We call it rulemakings, right? We call it the EPA makes a rule pursuant to a broad organic statute, but when it's doing that, it's executing the law. That's what our doctrine says, because that's what it has to say, right, under the Constitution. Only Congress may make law. The EPA can't make law, right? So there is a delegation problem. But I think the administrative state is probably even more unconstitutional in some respects than Philip Hamburger thinks, because it's a question of federal power, too. Right? This is a Wickard v. Filburn problem. This is a problem of why is the federal government doing a lot of these things to begin with? Right? So, there, so there are two separate issues. Uh, but, so I, I, I don't think right, delegation squares with originalism. Right? Only Congress can make law. I don't think Congress can delegate its legislative power. What can we do about it? What can we do about it today? Well, it's a hard question, right? The entire administrative state is based on the non-enforcement of the non-delegation doctrine, that the non-delegation doctrine instead. For what it's worth, um, I do some writing on administrative law, and I kind of have a solution for conservatives. I won't go into it now. But it is possible, I think, to tame the non-delegation doctrine, to not make it so powerful. Right? The problem is it's so powerful that if the court were to find a violation of the non-delegation doctrine, it would strike down entire statutory provisions. It would have to strike down the central provision of the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. Well, I think it's possible to tame it. I think it's possible to make it more modest, to make it what we call an as-applied doctrine. This isn't in the book, obviously, but I'd love to talk about that more um, sort of in a future All setting. Right. If Cato will have more me questions. back. We'll see how long you filibuster the answers this time. Let's go right here. You've had your hand up from the beginning. Hey, Alon, I'm Theodore Randalls with the DOJ. I wondered, do you think the entire Constitution is frozen in time, or could the founders have time-indexed certain parts of the Constitution, such as the phrase cruel and unusual in the Eighth Amendment or the word appropriate in Section 5 of the Fourteenth Amendment? So I do think that the meaning of the Constitution is fixed in time, right, depending on the provision. But that meaning is susceptible to changing application as facts about the world change, right? This is the difference between the common misconception that, well, the founders didn't conceive of the internet, and therefore, I mean, originalism must be crazy. What would James but, Madison think yeah. about violent video games anyway? Well, it doesn't matter, right? It matters what he wrote and how those principles then can be applied to future, uh, for future problems. So, for example, the First Amendment clearly protects speech on the Internet. It doesn't matter that the founders didn't conceive of this. The Fourth Amendment clearly applies to GPS devices put on your car, two things that the founders didn't think about. So I don't think they time-indexed the meaning of any words, though you know, I'm open to being pers persuaded otherwise. But that was the genius of the founders, is that they knew again. They knew that as a society we would evolve, and that technology would evolve, that moral values and, and, and social problems would change and evolve. And that's why 
when they did write things in, again, they left much to self-government, which was another part of their genius. But when they did write things in, they did write things like unreasonable searches and seizures. right? And so these principles, these standards, can apply to future problems, future conditions, future facts about the world. All right, let's go one more question. Um, right back there, because we've been treading the front line, so let's go to the, in the, in the white shirt there in the middle. So I'd like to uh, give you an example of where I think originalism can get it terribly wrong and see maybe what your reaction is to that. Uh, so both uh, Justice Thomas and Scalia have come out and said uh, that the Dormant Commerce Clause, as an originalist matter, is, is a lost cause, it's terrible. You can't do it if you're an originalist. Um, conceding, conceding that premise, that the, the sort of the, the meaning of the original Constitution doesn't allow for a Dormant Commerce Clause. Um, are you ready for a constitution that just allows states to enact trade restrictions against foreign states, or what will your proposed solution be? So I asked Jimmy to only give me softball questions, and he violated <laughs> that agreement. Um, I would just fight the premise. I think I think Scalia and Thomas are wrong on that. But anyway, well, I, I don't I don't know that they're wrong. I think they might be, but I don't know what they're wrong that they're wrong. And this, Gorsuch, for that matter, the, is the one thing I've discovered that I disagree with him on. This, right, this, this might be a case. Okay, again, I promise this will be quick, some background, right? So, so the Commerce Clause. Stand in between uh, people and their, and their okay. wine. So here. the Commerce Clause allows Congress to regulate commerce, right? But it doesn't say anything about whether the states can regulate commerce if Congress doesn't. Can the states fill in the gap? And for a long time, the, do the doctrine has been a mess since the beginning, uh, but the court has stepped up and said, we are going to police state regulations of commerce, even where Congress hasn't done anything. Now, the originalist argument hinges on whether the regulation of commerce was understood to be an exclusive power. Right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say um, uh, Congress shall have the exclusive power, right? but it says shall have the power. And, and maybe that excludes it. And so conservatives disagree about this. The world would be better with the Dormant Commerce Clause. I think uh, the world is better the more we maximize freedom and free institutions and free markets. And that, as I said, states often infringe on liberties. Right? Those are the competing interests of government. But I don't know, and I'm not committed to an answer yet, whether the original meaning of the Commerce Clause uh, per is exclusive. Right? It gives that power exclusively. Um, but I do think it would be a better constitution if it did. I just don't know the answer to that. Great. That's a good note to end on. Let's, uh, let's thank uh, Elon for his work here. Thank you for your indulgence.